it feels like it's being overshadowed by what's going on. Um, hey, it's Alana. And Jacqueline. And right. you're back for another episode of Black and Yellow. This has been history-making month for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And we just wanted to start the show off by sending all of you a lot of love and a lot of support wherever you are and whatever situation you are in. We realize that this is a really stressful, uncertain, chaotic, scary time for a lot of us. But we are all in this together. We will get through this. We have been through worse. We will totally rebuild together. We will grow together. But in the meantime, wash your hands, lead with compassion and kindness, take care of each other, and don't be a dick. If At the very least, just don't (laughs) be a dick, if if nothing else. (laughs) I don't think being a dick is going to help in any situation Uh, right now. Totally. I totally agree with you. Um, with that being said, we will most likely, you know, be starting off our episode sort of with just a little bit of, hey, how's everyone doing? You know, clearly, you know, if you've been in sweatpants for a week, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, you can mm-hmm. finally do it. Uh, ladies don't have to wear a bra for a week. I was going to um, say, no bras. <laughs> yeah, for weeks or months or who knows what, what else is going to unfold uh, during these times. Uh, but we also thought we would bring a twist to a different episode or segueing into the meat of this. Um, as far as, you know, we often talk about feminists and history and a lot of, um, you know, the ones that really, really made a difference as far as, you know, uh, mainstream uh, society knows of. So mm-hmm. we thought we would bring you guys three new Feminists, not new, because they've been around for a while, actually. Right. <laughs> um, but we thought we would, you know, change things up a bit and talk about, I guess you could say the little guys um, that are making a difference, but they're not little guys because they actually, you know, um, after after hearing what, what we're going to share with you guys, um, I, was, I was so proud of our, my community. And so um, we're going to talk about three feminists that no one has heard of. Um, including mm-hmm. myself and Alana, <laughs> uh, which was which was really fun for me to kind of dig in and sort of really really figure out um, what work um, the Asian American community has done. Uh, so I'll kick off. Um, I discovered Helen Zia. So this lady truly is amazing. Um, she is in almost her seventies now. And the amount of work she's done as a Chinese-American journalist and an activist for Asian-American and LGBTQ rights is uh, pretty astounding. Um, She herself is queer, and um, I think that stands for a lot in a time where in the 50s, you know, when she was born. Like, there's there's, that that must have been really difficult. Um, So just a quick little, little blurb of her, you know, mini firsts. Um, she, um, grew up, she went to, she first went to Princeton University, which in and of itself is pretty amazing. Um, but she was the, she went to, um, the uh, Woodrow Wilson School of Public International Affairs, and she was the member of the first graduating class of women. Uh, that's really cool. And she also was among the founders of the Asian American Students Association, she was also a vocal anti-war activist, opposing yeah. the involvement in the Vietnam War, which we all know what a mess that was. Um, she was a firm believer in feminism, 
And um, she has been active in movements creating cross-racial unity among low-income people of color. So her, her background's pretty varied. Um, she entered Tufts University, then she went to Detroit, Michigan, where she worked at a construction laborer, an auto worker. Oh. Um, just like, yeah, like what a badass woman. Uh, wow. Really okay. well-rounded. Like, got her hands dirty, you know, didn't really care or couldn't care because she probably had to make money. Um, so a little bit about her activism. Uh, while she was in Detroit, um, I really want to have an episode about this too. Um, but her, she overlapped with the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982. Um, we have been talking about Vincent Chin. Yeah. yeah that'd be a great one. episode. Mm-hmm. So, um, she played a crucial role in bringing federal civil rights charges against the perpetrators of Vincent, Vincent Chin's killing. And she, completely ignited an Asian American response um, because of that and through her to the crime and through her journalism and advocacy work. Um, So, yeah, so she she organized an Asian American movement in Detroit. Um, Her journalism helped really, you know, galvanize the Asian American community and really demand uh, justice for Vincent Chin. She has been extremely outspoken about civil rights, um, women's rights, and uh, hate violence and homophobia, because I'm sure she herself, being queer, um, had a lot to uh, come up against. Yeah, especially during that time. Yeah. She also testified before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, which is pretty awesome. um, Yeah, on the racial impact of news media. Um. She traveled to Beijing in 1995 to the United Nations Fourth World Congress on women as part of journalists and color delegation. Uh, She's she's done a whole bunch as far as um, appearing in programs and films. Uh, So she's just like, I wish she was my grandma. Um, (laughs) She couldn't be. Uh, well, she could, I guess. She had me really, really early. <laughs> um, but um, she has this really interesting quote, and I'm just going to read it because I thought it was really fascinating, you know, as I've spoken to you guys about my sort of um, Asian American identity and kind of feeling either one way, to one way and to the other way, right? And not really. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, for me, this this was interesting because growing up, I, I didn't grow up in a household that um, gave acti- activism a lot of, I guess, uh, like applaud. Not that not mm. that we had to, but it wasn't my, my mom was focused on raising two kids, you know, and right. I don't know if it was next, necessarily a luxury or wasn't a luxury for her, but she also, you know, didn't go to oh. college and wasn't... Um, you know, in 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 the in 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 it, like searching and working, she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, we had support from my dad, which we were really really lucky. Um, but other than that, you know, my mom's life was her kids, so mm-hmm. she doesn't naturally gravitate towards these this type of work, and it's not her fault. But I realized as I was doing all this research that like I had never really been exposed. You know, I've talked to you a lot about my my journey as a as a feminist and how I came into feminism with you. And it's been a little, and I will have an episode on that for you guys as well. But, um, and what, what is my, 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 you know, my, my method or my way, um, or how do I show it? And so I think, um, for me, 
I just had this moment of like, you know, I never was really exposed to this kind of work as a young girl. And so to find it now in my late 20s is, I think, just um, pretty, it's kind of like a weird feeling. Like, sometimes I feel like, wow, like, it would have been cool to have known these people a lot earlier, you know, so mm-hmm. I could have maybe been part of it or, and I still can, but it's also interesting to think like how people have been working for like more than my entire life on this kind of work. right. Yeah, it kind of feels um, like you were like didn't get the memo. Yeah, I know what like, you mean. You know what I mean? Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's like wait, this person existed. How come no one told me? Uh, where was I? No, I totally get what you mean. And I think as long as you you've shown up to the party, I think that's all that matters. Right, I agree. Um, so just gonna read a little bit of her quotes real quick, and then we can jump to yours. This is on sure. um sort of a little like biography um page by biography dot your dictionary dot com slash Helen Zia. If anyone's interested, um, <laughs> so quote: I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but somewhere during my childhood, I decided I was an American. Observed Zia in essence. Born in New York, New Jersey, to parents who immigrated from China, Zia grew up amid the traditions of two very different cultures. I liked hot dogs, Kool-Aid, apple pie, and the two-tone <laughs> and the two-tone Chevy wagon my dad drove. It sounds like a like a cool verse in a rap song. Um, it does actually. <laughs> she said. However, by the time she was eight, she and her family had encountered racial prejudice because of their perceived foreignness. In quotes, hmm. Zia, conclu- Zia concluded, "America didn't want me, and in that case, I didn't want to be a part of it." During her teenage years, she very much identified with the Black Civil Rights Movement and its leaders. So, yeah, um, girl. Yeah, so it was just like, I was like, she's black and yellow. <laughs> yeah, um, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, anyways, um, that I just wanted to kind of share with you guys her work, Helen Zia. She's much older now. So, um, as of right now, I know she resides out of Oakland, if I'm not mistaken. And um, she is still working as a journalist. Um, Yeah. And um, and so I think she's still doing the work that she's doing, probably just a little bit more low key. And obviously because of her age and still doing it through her medium, which would be writing. Um, So, um, yeah, guys, this is this is um, this is, I mean, if you're interested, I guess just, you know, you can look her up and follow her work um, as a journalist. Um, she's been published in a bunch of things. I'm sure you could find all the articles that she's read. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's that's my first one. Okay, Helen, I see you, girl. <laughs> well, you and I must have been on a very specific wavelength, as it feels like we tend to be mm. on this show, because my first lady is also queer as well. Uh, wow. Her name is Dr. Polly Murray. She's a black, queer, feminist, legal eagle. And Jackie, she wow. was a multi-hyphenate before multi-hyphenates were even a thing. Um, she's a poet, a writer, an activist, a labor organizer, a legal theorist, an Episcopal priest, a saint, like an actual p- saint, like an she actual- is invited into the sainthood uh, in 2012, the Episcopal sainthood. Let me just clarify that. Um, <laughs> but it seems like back when, so my woman, Dr. Polly Murray and your Helen 
existed around the same time and it it feels like back in their their younger days you could have this many balls in the air or plates spinning whatever metaphor you prefer to use um and make it work in a way that i feel like sometimes today if i even tried to be all of these things i would fail miserably or be you know like a um what's that phrase a jack of all trades master of none right 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 (laughs) but uh most importantly Polly murray is one of the most crucial figures in the 20th century african-american civil rights movement and in civil rights history i wonder if Polly and helen ever hung out um but if you if you don't hang around the academia water cooler you've probably never heard of her however it was at an academic institution that Polly began to really flex her forward-thinking feminist mind that would change history so essentially it all started with a ten dollar bet in 1944 in her howard university law class now mind you Polly was the first woman in her class and she was at the top of her class so you know she already had her white classmates shook but on this particular day her and her classmates were talking about how to bring an end to Jim Crow and Mm -hmm. you have to understand that by this time in 1944 it had already been about half a century since Plessy versus Ferguson quick and dirty recap Plessy versus Ferguson was the landmark US Supreme Court decision that upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation separate Mm. but equal that was the doctrine that, that it operated under and so lawyers were really focused on the equal part of that doctrine mm. as opposed to the separate part but mm. not Polly. Polly was like wait 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 hold uh-uh. up what about this radical notion what if we focus on the separate part and not the equal part y'all feel okay. me and of course they didn't feel her they were laughing at her they told her that she was wrong and basically told her that any stance that challenged Plessy would result in the Supreme Court affirming it But Polly was so unbothered, so unbothered, in fact, that in front of her entire class, she bet her professor, Spotwoods Robinson, check that out for a name, uh, $10 that Plessy versus Ferguson would be overturned in 25 years. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money back then. (laughs) Well, guess what? Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned in under 25 years. It was overturned in 10 years. And so Professor Robinson owed her $10 and a whole lot more. As a side note, girl, I love a good I told you so. Mm -hmm. I know you do. I love it. That was the ultimate I told you so. But... That's not all she did. In her final law school paper, she actually formalized the idea that she had had in class, arguing that segregation violated the 13th and 14th Amendments of the Constitution. And so years had passed. And when her old professor, Spotwoods Robinson, tried to bring an end to Jim Crow, he remembered Polly's paper and retrieved it from his files and presented it to his colleagues who, in 1954, successfully argued Brown versus the Board of Education and used a lot of her arguments and a lot of her uh, foundational thoughts in her paper to argue that case successfully. Wow. Like, so she was forward thinking before forward thinking was even a thing. Here's the weird part about that. She, for as unquestionably awesome as that, as this is, uh, Dr. Murray didn't actually find out about her contributions to Brown v. Board until she was around 
almost 50 years old. Wow. Yeah, Spotwoods Robinson was not calling his former student being like, hey, girl, BT dubs, your brain uh, made all... Exactly. Like, your brain made all this amazing amazing things happen. Um, big ups to you. But <laughs> <laughs> this woman's brag sheet sort of reads like uh, like Beyonce's like discography and all of just Beyonce's accolades like her brag sheet is so long she yeah. organized sit-ins that successfully desegregated restaurants in DC she was arrested in 1940 because she refused to move to the back of the bus and she refused to move as part of a protest in Virginia and she did that 15 years before Rosa Parks did wow now granted Right. Now we know about Rosa Parks is not moving because Everyone her does. pro right, because her protest sparked the bus boycotts in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. Polly was just arrested, so there was no like, you know, bus boycotts and pomp right. and circumstance following hers, but she did that protest that Rosa Parks had to have heard of at a, at, at some point in time before she refused to move to the back of the bus. I mean, I just I, I refuse to believe that she that Rosa Parks hadn't heard about this move. So I'm telling myself that she did. Mm-hmm. She also coined the term Jane Crow, which I had actually never heard of before. But Jane Crow, think Jim Crow, but right. used to refer to gender discrimination. So um, like Jane Crow is Jim's sister, if you right. will. Right, right. She was appointed uh, by President John F. Kennedy to the Commission of the Status of Women. She was named Mademoiselle's Woman of the Year in 1947. Ooh la la. She Mm -hmm. co-founded the National Organization of Women in 1966. And in the 60s, she argued that the Equal Protection Clause should be applied to sexual discrimination in the way that they applied it to racial discrimination. And Mm -hmm. Jackie... You might recognize something here. So her argument was termed the reasoning of race, where analogies of race were used to subordinate the status of women. Essentially, you know, one type of talking about race was then subbed in to talk about gender. Something like uh, intersectionality, who we know about intersectionality because friend of the show, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined that phrase, was no doubt influenced by the work of Dr. Murray. And just to bring all of Dr. Murray's amazingness to a close, we can't really talk about Dr. Murray without acknowledging the 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 real-time feminist icon who modern-day feminists know, love, and bow to. That woman is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. So one of Ginsburg's biggest landmark cases was in 1971. It was a case called Reed versus Reed. And a lot of the arguments that Ginsburg used to win that case were inspired by the work of Dr. Murray and her arguments that the Fourth Amendment protected against discrimination based upon sex. So Ginsburg actually named Dr. Murray and Judge Dorothy Kenyon as authors of the brief in the Reed case, because even though those two women hadn't technically written the brief, they were trailblazers in creating the legal strategy to fight sexual discrimination. Mm. So it feels like you're it feels like Helen and Dr. Polly were crossing a lot of the same thresholds in their work in their work against um, uh homophobia but also in gender discrimination as well 
Yeah. And I just love that Helen, I didn't like identified with the civil rights movement as well. Like I just sort of love that African-American and Asian-American alliance way back then. That makes me so excited. Right. When I read, that's why I had to read that quote because first of all, I thought it was, you know, kind of weird for her to, to start off saying that, you know, she, you know, didn't decided she was an American that like that line just caught my attention and, and then mm. I and then I said as I read more into it I was like you know how many I'm sure there's so many people at that time who fe- felt the same way whether you were Latino you know or black or Asian and so I think then for her to not have anything to relate to you know right. and then of course it would make sense that she would want to identify with the black civil rights because it's that same it's that same kind of spirit that same kind of fighting spirit um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which for us as asian americans didn't happen so much and as loud um until the later you know um until like 1970 i want to say but more on the side of i mean i think it started for a while but i think it was more on the west coast and on the East Coast. Actually, I should do some research on how much of it happened on the West Coast. I mean, on the East Coast, because I know that a bunch of stuff <laughs> happened in um, West Coast, East Coast. Jeez. Um, I know a bunch <laughs> of stuff happened in um, in San Francisco. Um, and that's right. kind of what a lot of people focus on, you know. Um, but I don't actually I don't hear much or haven't read much about any anything on the um, East Coast. Anyway, that could be a next one. It's true. Um, well, I do feel like I feel like Helen's work, we're feeling um, like the effects of it still today, especially right now in this coronavirus craziness, because I do think that we are seeing a lot of Asians and Asian Americans of all genders and of all of all uh, ages stepping up and fighting for their respect during mm-hmm. this time, during this time where the racist administration is basically wanting to blame Chinese people for this disease or East Asians more broadly. I love that we are seeing so many Asian American and and Asian activists stepping up, getting loud and commanding respect. Like it gives me chills. I love that fighting spirit. So I think Helen is Helen's work is still living strong. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's so wonderful to have these people really put their life on the line, you know, and put their heart out as well to really just, um, fight for, um, justice and, um, agreed and for what, uh, every, we all deserve. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, my next one, <laughs> um, also is the same, it, it, it even a little bit more, she it's a little bit more even more niche in in, in the subject of labor um, Ooh. yeah so i found this through an article on vice so the article on vice if anyone's really interested it's really cool um it talks about um the um asian american feminist um fe- it it's it interviews all the 14 women that founded and work for the Asian American Feminism um, dot org, I believe. Um, oh, yeah, Asian AM American dot org. Um, it's really really cool. Um, they profile all fourteen girls and ask them, you know, really really specific questions, um, which is pretty awesome. So I stumbled upon this article, which led me to like a million other articles. Um, so this woman is, I hope I'm saying her name right, um, Ai Jin Poo. 
Um, she is a Taiwanese American. Woohoo! Um, but she is an American labor activist. So she's the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. If anyone's really interested, go on their website. It's pretty fascinating. Um, So the um, National Domestic Workers Alliance is an advocacy organization that promotes the rights of domestic workers in the United States. It was founded in 2007. It's made of four local chapters and 63 affiliate organizations around the country, along with thousands of individual members. Their work advocates for low-income laborers in the context of broader social justice issues, including immigration reform, domestic violence, and recently the Me Too movement. Wow. Um, yeah, so, which is great because it's not even about, doesn't even, it's not even about like Asians anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's everybody, yeah. It's, yeah, it's literally everybody who, um, you know, falls into that category, um, which is <laughs> A lot, actually, and they need they need support. Um, so she is. Um, so she quotes her parents saying that they really instilled her with these social justice values, and I think this is where I had that moment where I was like, she got it from her parents, you know, and and I didn't because right. we have different parents. Um, so her father. They have awesome names. Um, her father, Mu Ming Pu, is a neuroscientist and a one-time political activist who immigrated from Taiwan in the 1970s. And her mother, Wen Jen Hu, um, has a PhD in chemistry as well as an MD. Um, and she was an oncologist at one of the top cancer nations, uh, cancer centers ah. in the nation. So already a very, like you said, if you don't hang out in the you know academic uh, um water cooler then you might not discover these people or know these people or mm-hmm. you know get involved in this kind of work but not necessarily as well um i think if you have passion for this kind of work that's all that matters you don't need to have you don't need to go to brown or princeton or columbia or any of these um mm-hmm. but they do have a common thread um in the sense of you know her parents were really academic and they were they really instilled this in her um which i'm sure helped her fund this as well and give her the drive and support um, so, um, a cool little fact, she attended the 75th Golden Globe Awards in 2018 as a guest of Meryl Streep. What? Um, yeah. Um, Dope. so Meryl Streep was like, I can, I guess, I don't know how it completely works, but I'm pretty sure she can invite as many guests as she wants or has an X amount of numbers of guests she could invite. And she invited her. Um, so I love just, that. I love that right? so much. Isn't it cool? Just kind of really. That's awesome just really honoring the women who um, are making a difference for these people. Yeah. And doing it on a stage or at an event that definitely does not, uh, is not known for lifting up tons of people of color. Right. Right. I feel like Oscar so white is just the thing all the time. So yeah, like I think that's awesome. Cool, Meryl Streep. What an ally you are. Yeah, I agree. Um, so um, okay, so just a little bit about her or a lot about her accomplishments. <laughs> um, um, so she began organizing domestic work in 1996. Um, with the uh, CAAAV organization, Asian Communities. Um, she mm. is the founder and former lead organizer of Domestic Workers United. 
um, an organization of um, Caribbean, Latina, African nannies, housekeepers, and elderly caregivers in New York that organizes for power, respect, and fair labor standards. It's really awesome. Um, hmm. Yeah. Um, and- so she's also about that African-American Asian alliance. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Love it. Um, so uh, in 2010, Domestic Workers United was instrumental in, I'm like all about the East Coast right now, I guess. You I, are. <laughs> in New York, um, state passing the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights into law. And this law was the first in the United States to guarantee domestic workers basic labor protections, such as overtime pay, three days paid leave, and legal protections from harassment and discrimination. Um, the domestic it's it's high, it's shortened the DWU helped to organize the first national meeting of domestic workers organizations at the U.S. Social Forum in 2007, which resulted in the formation of the National Domestic Workers Alliance that year. She has been wow. the NDWA's director since April 2010, and she helped launch um, in 2011 the Caring Across Generations, and I'm sure is another organization that is just continually helping and doing this kind of work. Um, so... Yes, what were you going to say? I was going to say, yeah, Carry Across Generations, I feel like I remember hearing about that not too long ago, because it's supposed to help, like, like, g- like, basically generations of families that are coming into the labor organization to make sure that they all have, like, livable wages and to make sure that, you know, the older, um, older employees that are in that organization have, I guess, retirement and post, post-work benefits. Am I right? Yeah. So they are building a movement. I'm on the website right now. Of all ages and backgrounds to transform the way we care. Um, So no, I'm thinking of something totally different. Yeah. They they plan for – planning for long-term care is not just personal. It's political. Um, So they're working to bring caregiving infrastructure into the 21st century so everyone with age – everyone can age with care and dignity got it that's um, what it is okay i'm definitely confusing it with something else people who have access to care support for families and better care jobs so pretty much it's like mm, allowing something regardless if you have insurance or don't which i'm pretty sure right if, if you are you know of this of this uh, the subject that we're talking about most likely these people aren't relying on insurance or don't have a long term mm-hmm. care program or something set in stone because you know obviously of um how how um they got here and you know their past and all their stuff mm-hmm. so i think it's almost amazing to have i think it's amazing to have this this sort of public system that allows people to have um long term care properly yeah i think it's necessary and it's humane right and without the without having to go the private route because people don't have the luxury to do that nowadays as much Mm -hmm. you know um so anyways um so she helped launch that which i'm sure giving her time and energy and her expertise um it's good to know you know that that we have people like that that are that are creating this um it's also good to know those organizations exist for anyone yeah. that maybe didn't know about them, but now, but now is in the know and who and have family members that could benefit. I think it's super important information to to continue to disseminate. 
Right. I agree. Um, so a couple of awards she's won. She's received the Open Society Institute Community Fellowship, the Union Square Award, the Leadership for the Leadership for a Changing World Award. Wow, that's a cool award to get. <laughs> yeah, it's really long. Um, the Ernest DeMaio Award from the Labor Research Association, the Woman of Vision Award from Miss Foundation of Women, the also Women of Bannerman Vision Fellowship for Organizers of Color. Um, the Twink Frey Visiting Scholar Fellowship at University of Michigan Center for the Education of Women, the Prime Movers Fellowship, um, mm. in honor of the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day. Um, she was recognized um, by Women Deliver as one 100 women internationally who are delivering for other women. Um, in 2009, she was named one of Crane's 40 Under 40, New York Moves Magazine's Power Woman in 2010. Wow, she's got a bunch. Um, I'll skip through some of them because they're really long. And she's, <laughs> in, 2000 and, in 2012, she was named one of Times 100 in Times Magazine. As well 100 as, Most Influential People? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, as well as one of Newsweek's 150 Women Who Shake the World. Um, wow. Yeah. So she, in September 2014, she was also awarded the MacArthur Fellowship Grant, um, mm. which is also called the MacArthur Genius Grant. So yep. that's pretty awesome. Um, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the New School. And um, yeah, it goes on and on and on. So, <laughs> anyways, just the, the last bit of her recent work. Um, I'm just going to read this quick blurb here because it's really, really awesome. So um, in the spring of 2019, so this is recent, um, Pooh, I love that her last name is also Pooh. Um, right. <laughs> Pooh co-founded the group Supermajority with Cecile Richards and Alicia Garza. The group oh, aims, yeah. The group aims to train and mobilize 2 million women over the next year to become organizer, activists, activists, and leaders ahead of the 2020 election to create a multiracial Interge- intergenerational wow that's a big <laughs> movement for women's equal equity the main goal of supermajority is to push politicians to adopt an agenda akin to what richards called a woman's new deal with issues like voting rights gun control paid leave family leave equal pay and others viewed as soft issues being seen as issues that impact everyone in addition they intend to create women they intend to, I would love if they could create women. They intend to educate women about issues um, such as pay equity and affordable childcare, as well as inform them on basic organizing skills like voter registration. Hmm. Um, in the 2020 election, co-founder Richard says the group will be successful if 54% of the voters in the country are women and were able to insert into this country the issues that women care about and elect a president who's committed to doing something about them. So that's cool. Yeah, definitely. Really? And it didn't happen that long ago. Yeah, this was like a couple months ago. And I'm sure they're they're working on it because obviously based on what's going to happen this year um, will prove, right, if their supermajority yep. was effective um, or not in that sense. And let's not forget this Women's History Month is themed valiant women of the vote. So they're right. helping women to vote valiantly. Yep, exactly. Um, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right on, sister. I got to say, after hearing that um, 
that awards and accolades list woman of vision award it's now an award that i want us to win for this podcast a woman of vision award i just think that's fantastic yeah i agree (laughs) yeah i think it's a super high honor and i think that's really dope jack so it seems like yeah it seems like the first were the first two women you chose the first woman i chose they're very niche if you're not hanging around the labor organizing water cooler or the academic water cooler you haven't heard of these people which is why we're doing this episode because i surely didn't know about helen or miss Pooh for that matter right i just love that her last name is Pooh. i know it's just like it doesn't you don't even get a chance to like sit on it too long because you're like Wait, wait, wait. Who is she? What has she done? And let me hear all about her awesomeness. And then. Well, it's like a last name with a built in slogan. Like, I know. She don't take shit from anyone. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Got bullshit. Take it outside. Miss Pooh is not here for it. I just love it. The amount of amount of poo jokes and poo lines she heard as a child growing up probably was enough to fuel her to, you know, to definitely be a strong strong strong, strong oh yeah strong woman. Um, totally because kids are assholes and she's like oh poo d- poop jokes that's all you got hmm, yeah, i'm gonna right. be a woman of vision and like right, you're, help <laughs> I just swaths her, like, of people a, better themselves right like, like as a 10 year old like you have poo, ju- poo jokes well i'm creating a plan that's gonna help millions right. of women like well, what do you have what else you got <laughs> right exactly take your poo jokes and well, yeah. you know, you, you know what happens with poo. You know where it comes out of. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, with that uh, poo segue, I right. will jump into <laughs> my next woman. Um, she was the first woman of color to go into space. And her what? name is Mae Jemison. I know. I When I think of space and space exploration and that entire industry, um, I don't think of black people. I don't truth be told uh, actually I think of white first yeah and then probably either black or Latino here and there if I have to and I think honestly I do now now I'm curious I do think of Asians last really that's interesting because I actually I I do think of the industry as being very male and very pale but (laughs) the second uh, group of people that popped into my mind were actually Asian men really yeah i think it's the engineering bit that makes me think that made me think white and asian dominant engineering Mm. mathematics sciences that's i think why my mind went there um but i was really happy to learn about may jemison who i like you and your affinity for helen i now want to be related to may jemison but since i'm not i have just affectionately dubbed her the deep space diva because she kicks a lot of butt uh so jemison was born in october of 1956 and she remembers watching telecasts of the gemini and apollo space missions and as a kid she too hoped that one day she would pilot a ship into the next frontier but in the 60s let's be real wanting to be an astronaut if you were a young black girl was not exactly encouraged and societal and social pressures to conform began pretty young Uh, she tells a story uh, about when she was in kindergarten she says quote in kindergarten my teacher asked me what i wanted to be when i grew up i told her a scientist she said don't you mean a nurse now there's nothing wrong with being a nurse but that's not what i wanted to be That teacher is so ignorant, by the way. Teachers like that drive me crazy. Do not squelch kids' dreams for any teachers that might be listening. Let kids dream big. 
Um, right. And but that ignorant teacher did not dismay Jemison, who spent a lot of her childhood basically consuming any information that was available on astronomy and space and space travel and the solar system while concurrently fostering her imagination through science fiction stories and novels and also looking at early images of space travel. And so she went to Stanford University on scholarship at age 16 because she's just like badass like that. And she double majored in chemical engineering and African-American studies. Right. I know. I know. She received her MD from Cornell University Medical College. uh, And then she sort of lost interest, maybe not lost interest in space travel, but she backburnered the interest in space travel. And as a weird side note story, even though she graduated with honors from her her Cornell University medical program, one of the local elementary school teachers, uh, when coming to pick students to talk to his class about space, told May that he won't be picking her because she doesn't look like someone who would understand or know anything about space. That story hits me particularly hard because I went to Ithaca College, which is in the same small upstate New York city as Cornell. So Ithaca can be when school's not in session is very white. It's very conservative. And that sort of mindset is really pervasive there. And so I just felt like I had to share that story because, listen, Mae Jemison went on to stunt on those people. Okay. So she went to the Peace Corps for a bit and she traveled around places like Sierra Leone and Liberia and other parts of West Africa providing medical care. But when she got back to L.A. in 1985, she reignited her love of engineering, which invigorated or I should say reinvigorated her childhood dream of being an astronaut. And real talk, Sally Ride was the first woman to go into space in 1983. And so Jemison was like, oh, this whole space thing. I got it. So she applied to NASA and got in in 1987. And upon the realization that she achieved her own dreams, she simultaneously served as an inspiration for millions of men and women worldwide. And she says, quote, there have been lots of other women who had talent and ability before me. I think this can be seen as an an affirmation that we're moving ahead. And I hope it means that I'm just in line and I hope sorry and I hope it means that I'm just the first in a long line so she was really all about self-actualization by any means necessary and really actualizing her dreams and so on my favorite day uh, in all days of our year September 12th in 1992 she actually made it into orbit. She uh, hopped aboard the space shuttle Endeavor and she made history as the first woman of color to go into space. Jackie, do you know what Jemison brought with her on her space travel? Because I didn't realize that you could bring little like sentiments and knickknacks from home, but she did. You want to take a guess at what she brought? Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, I immediately thought the Bible for whatever reason. And then I thought okay, maybe a I- picture of her family. Okay, you're with it on the picture front because she did bring a picture, but it wasn't of her family. No, 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 Jackie. This will hit you and I in a very specific dancer heart because she brought a poster of Alvin Ailey, American dance 
theater wow. on the endeavor. Yeah, because she, as opposed, not as opposed to, in addition to uh, loving engineering and space travel and all things solar system, she also loves modern dance and African dance, and she has produced wow. and choreographed her own modern dance shows. Wow, yeah, what a I know. cool woman. I love right? that. I love that. She also brought pieces of art from uh, her West African nations that she worked in because, you know, May just never stops doing it for the culture. Right. Uh, but she chose these items as a symbolic of her dedication to the arts and creativity, as well as to make the statement that space travel is the privilege of all nations, not only industrialized empires of space programs. I dig that a lot. She was standing up. She was like, I'm here. I'm black. I'm proud. And I'm in space. What are y'all going to do about it? <laughs> what can you say to that? Exactly. Uh, Jefferson left NASA in 1993. But whatever you do, please don't call her a trailblazer for being the first black woman in space. As she would say, quote, there is a need for all people, not just blacks, to realize that people of color can excel in any area if given the chance. It's important not only for little black girls growing up to know they can become an astronaut because Mae Jemison was, but it's important for older white males who sometimes make decisions on the careers of those little black girls. You don't have to be very careful about the images or you have to be very careful about the images that you have of people. Some people say, I don't look like an astronaut, but that's okay because I am one. <laughs> stunt. That's all I got to say is a stunt girl. So she's won a ton of awards and a ton of accolades. I will not bore you with the major list, but <laughs> now she lives in Houston, Texas, where she founded and still continues to run the Jemison Group, which was set up to research, develop, and implement advanced technologies suited to the social, political, cultural, and economic context of the individual, especially for the developing world. I am not smart enough to even begin to understand the work that the Jemison Group does, but I know right. they're doing big things. <laughs> I know they are. <laughs> um, and just to round out this May Jemison hype fest, I wanted to pass along a piece of advice that she gives to dreamers, both young and old, because I love it. And I think in this, this time of social distancing, why not? Why not? Don't right. let anyone, she says, rob you of your imagination, your creativity, or your curiosity. It's your place in the world. Mm, if you, it's your life. Go on and do all you can with it and make it what you want to be. I just mm. love that. I love that she's, she really uh, actualized what she wanted in her life. I think that we talk about, you know, our dreams as young children. And I think for a lot of adults, as we get older, the dreams sort of fall by the wayside. Yeah, and I definitely. love that she stuck to her guns. And and let it be known, like going and joining the Peace Corps and providing medical care is not, to me, is is just as admirable as, as you know, being an astronaut. But I do love that she managed to do both. She managed to, to to do it for the culture and take care of people that looked like her, but also was able to reignite the passions that she had with her own dreams of being an astronaut and, and took an industry that was very white and made it just a little bit blacker. Right. I love that. <laughs> and not because it was about necessarily that too, but it was just about who she was you know right that's a hundred percent that's ultimately why 
I mean, we're doing this and we're spotlighting is like these people pave the way for the little black girl who the next little black girl who wanted to be going to space. You know, right. like we need like how many times have we said this? Like representation matters. So if mm-hmm. you like you can see someone who looks like you. I understand. Yes, we can talk about how we're all the same. And, you know, in the midst of what's happening in today's world, we realize more and more that what we need is unity, that what we need is to be able to cooperate and work together. It's not shouldn't be political, you know? Agreed. I don't know how long it'll take for us to I don't know if and when we'll ever get there, but um you know, we have these people that consistently show us the way to do and to be, you know, with grace, yeah. with poise, with humility. And I think if we can have people, uh, I guess, be more inspired or be more open to, to, like you said, to that, to lead with compassion and humility, then mm-hmm. we can really start making some changes, you know? Um uh, Totally. Anyways, you said it. I have no follow up to that because you (laughs) killed that one. Yeah. (laughs) So my last one, I thought I would go a little bit way, way, way to a whole different section. I thought it would be interesting because um, it's something I've never had to really, I guess, suffer with. I, I don't know what it's like to I know what it's like to not really fit in. And, you know, like I've talked a lot about my identity issues, but I've never really had to feel like I don't belong in the same body or that I'm a different ah, gender. Got it. Um, which I, I, like, I try to put myself in that kind of mindset and body and I just, I don't, I, like, I, I start to kind of, like, hyperventilate because it gets, it mm. gets a lot, you know? So yeah. I really wanted to, this one, it's, it, it is a little bit, um, she's, she is short-lived um, and you'll find out why, but um, I wanted to spotlight Mark Aguar. Um, okay. So he was um, a millennial. Yes, he was born in May sixteenth, nineteen eighty-seven. Um, wow. But she, who is trans, um, was an American activist, writer, and I chose her because of the age of technology that we're in. And got it. Um, she was all about. I'll write. I'll read her artist statement in a second, but it was really about growing up gay on the internet, um, mm. and about um, incorporating all this multimedia and how. I mean, you know, nowadays, you know, people get divorced, they go into therapy. Facebook is brought up like seventy six times, you know, or like yeah. something along the lines of maybe not Facebook, maybe Instagram, whatever it is, you know. Um, so. She is known for her multidisciplinary work about gender, beauty, and existing as a racial minority while being body positive and transgendered femme identified. She was famous, made famous by her Tumblr blog that questioned the mainstream representation of the glossy glorification of the gay white male body. Um, Wait, can you repeat that last one? I think I lost you a little bit. Yeah, so her... her um, famous blog on tumblr called blogging for brown girls uh questioned the mainstream representation of the glossy glorification of the gay white male body okay got it i'm with you and r.i.p tumblr by the way right um thank you i was gonna say that um so i know (laughs) the the technology how fast it is like already outdated 
Um, right. So she was born in Texas to a Filipino American family, or he was born in Texas to American uh, to a, a Filipino American family. Um, she went to the University of Texas. Um, she, you know, probably she went the performance space. She did performance space pieces, watercolors, collages, photography, all the like artist route. Um, right. So um, she her strong online presence um, when Tupler existed, um, I think was a huge outlet for her to kind of show who she really wanted to be um, posting her thoughts about sexuality, sex, dating, gender, and obviously her work. Um, So I'm just going to read her quote here. It's really interesting. Um, Quote, my work is about visibility. My work is about the fact that I am a gender queer person of color fat femme fag feminist and i don't really know what to do with that identity in this world it's Mm. that thing where you grow up learning to hate every aspect of yourself and unlearning all that misery is really hard to do it's that thing where you kind of regret everything you've ever done because it's so complicated with white hegemony it's that thing where you realize that your own attempts at passive aggressive manipulation and power don't stand a chance against it, the structural forms of domination against your body. It's that thing where the only way to cope with the reality of your situation is to pretend it doesn't exist because flippancy is a privilege you don't own, but you're going to pretend you don't you do anyway. So it's really sad. Um, he, she was only a few months away from earning her MFA degree. Um, and she um, she uh, decided to kill herself um, on March. I'm, I missed the last bit of what you said. What was that? She uh, she died by suicide in, in on March twelfth, two thousand twelve. Oh, yeah. So wow. I think I think it's that age. I really wanted to spotlight this and talk about it because we see a lot of this now of like these troubled souls that come on to this planet for just a brief moment you know and what they do and Mm -hmm. what they say and what they leave behind um leaves a lot of inspiration and it it's like she opens this door and then she leaves right like she leaves this door open which is great because the door would never have been opened if she was never on this planet you know um so i think I think for people who are trans and for people who are searching and feel just like her um, really have a way to connect. Um, and the fact that she made art, you know, she photo- she had, did photography, she wrote, um, you know, she um, drew um, be- as, as a way of, of being that kind of, queer, trans, fat, femme, and brown style that she talks about um, Mm -hmm. is like, talk about, talk about putting all those things like in one sentence, right? Like you can't even already being a minority and then you're already trans and then you identify with being femme trans, but then you, you know, it's just, it's so much. I can't, I I like my compassion and my normalcy makes me want to like, just I wish I could like understand like an inch of what that that life is like, you know, because right. my heart goes out so much for these these kinds of situations that that, you know, I don't know what happened. Did she feel like she really couldn't, you know, the art was a way for her to express herself. But ultimately, did she not feel like she could express herself 
completely mm. and therefore felt like she had no choice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, um, she's got some work on YouTube. Um, and um, she, I think because of this age of technology and online world, you know, she really cultivated like a strong online presence um, dedicated to that kind of, you know, uh, says here, high femme, queer, brown girl aesthetic. Um, right. So um, there's a bit here on a great Vice article. Um, but um, if you ever, if anyone wants to check it out, um, but, you know, she constantly critiqued normative beauty standards. She called out racism, misogyny, fat phobia, and expanded the conventional understandings of femininity. Um, I think what what she <laughs> left, bless you. Um, Thank I you. think what she left continues to teach us about all the possibilities we can find um, in the LGBTQ world, you know, and the everyday mm-hmm. expression as a tool for survival. Um, so yeah, she, she wrote songs. Um, she sang, um, so just this last bit here, um, Aguirre created artwork that claims space for people who exist outside the gender binary and insists on our right to lead fulfilling lives in our text paintings, which are made from paper embossed with messages and glitter, such as I'd rather be beautiful than male. Aguar demonstrated mm-hmm. the playful and color potential she saw in femininity. This powerful statement not only offers up queer tenacity, but also highlights the importance of expanding the notions of femininity beyond the cisgender male experience. As mainstream mm. feminism addresses issues like pervasiveness and of sexual violence against women in our culture, the need to include trans women and non-binary femmes in these conversations is more urgent than ever. Yeah, I so. I couldn't agree with that more. I think um I think when we're talking about modern day feminism, I think that when it comes to trans women, I think there's a lot of cisgender women who are a part of the feminist movement or maybe those who are not that have a really difficult time identifying with a trans woman's journey to womanhood. Oh, I because sure. Well, because it and it's it because it's so radically different from what quote unquote the road to traditional womanhood is you know like as a cisgender woman I know that becoming a woman part of that is getting boobs and getting a period and that's not the case for trans women they're not necessarily getting their period they may or may not be getting boobs but that doesn't devalue their journey to womanhood and their identity as a woman and I think that that's still a really difficult uh point for some women feminist or not to swallow Mm -hmm. in terms of really understanding uh trans women from their from their transition into womanhood and what womanhood means to them yeah that makes any sense I agree I mean I I'm I understand because as i as I, you know, was reading about this and learning about Mark, I, I just thought, you know, what a diff, what a different way of living and being in this world. Yet, she possibly, in a way, you know, inherently wants and needs all the things that I also need and want as a woman. You know, for sure, 
and that yeah. her her pass her passage or her path to get there may be very 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 different um mm-hmm. and that it may begin at a much much younger age and may require a lot more attention and a lot more money depending on if it is something more scientific or you know surgery or hormones but it's like how then can we make sure that they are also included in this kind of conversation yes inclusion Um, is number one yeah definitely and 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 that we are all women who want to have equality and feel fully expressed and and want to you know claim space um and also come home to our you know our own bodies and knowing that that we are loved um and that we we can we can just exist and be okay right yeah Um, definitely i think that a great way to be a real ally to our trans sisters or brothers um is to sort of knock off that stupid cisgender shit if you know what i mean by that yeah to really stop and think about okay this person's journey towards sexual identity towards gender identity might be radically different from mine but that doesn't mean that ignorant cisgender statements Mm -hmm. should be tolerated either and i think that it falls on us as allies us cisgender allies to really nip that sort of hatred in the bud because let's be in the butt because let's be real that kind of hatred generally happens behind closed doors it generally happens among quote unquote like-minded friends um and i think that just just in the same way that we say fighting racism has to happen in public but also in your private small circles i think fighting transphobia and fighting hatred towards trans people also starts in the exact same way Mm -hmm. yeah um i also really love the the work that you just told us about because you and i obviously living and growing up in los angeles california i think that our vision of what gayness is can sometimes be skewed you know you've got mm-hmm. the like hot we boys i was literally gonna say like the hot yep. white or super hot and asian ripped bodies perfect tans <laughs> um, um designer clothes it could be right. quite whitewashed the perfect and chiseled facial hair yeah yeah. yeah, everything is perfection and it can be quite whitewashed. And I know that when I hang out with my black gay friends, it's a totally different world. It's a totally different gay experience mm-hmm. that I think we don't hear enough about or see enough about, especially in a city like this. You know oh, what I mean? It's yeah, like, of course. you want to oh default good time in L.A.? go to West Hollywood. Right. That's generally, I mean, I'm speaking as like a straight woman, which I know that might be a troublesome statement for some people. Cause I could also hear some people being like, um, hi, yeah, my sexuality is not an excuse for you to go out in a city and not, and have to avoid being hit on by straight people, which that is very, very fair as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I appreciate the work that Mark did because I think that it did open the floodgates for other like-minded people to utilize the internet to rise to fame and notoriety in their own rights. I mean, we see how many trans artists and activists are now dominating our airwaves right. and dominating the internet. 
And right. you have to think like Mark's work allowed for those artists to really have a platform. And I think for that, she'll never, her presence will never be forgotten. Her influence will never die. Yeah. I mean, she's got on, um, on 8millionrising.org, she's got wow. this beautiful love letter that was written to her um, by someone wow. who was probably very similar to her. And I think, um, you know, I think... Um, uh, she was an inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I just was I was I was staring at a picture that that he he uh, says LOL reverse racism. So I just got a little mm-hmm. caught on on it. Um, anyways, yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yeah. So that's my last one. It's a little bit it's a little bit heavier, or you know, it ends with a little bit more of a of a, of a more. De- Impressive tone in the sense of, okay. you know, obviously the way she ended her life. But um, I did really, I thought it was important to kind of um, to talk about it because we, we, we need to demystify that it's, you know, it's she, these, they, they exist, you know, and they need yeah. to, they need to be seen and they need to be heard. So agreed. Yeah. And I'm happy that you brought it up and you know what? It's okay that, that the, the tone took a little downswing. I will try and raise it up a little bit. Exactly. It's life. Um, I wish that we were on. Damn it. I wish that my mind was on the same wavelength as yours to kind of bring it back to a a modern day fantastic feminist that we've never heard of. Sadly, we all know you're an analog girl. I am. Mine was born in 1910. So we're not (laughs) staying modern. Um, My final badass woman is Mary Lou Williams. She is the divine apostle of jazz and the woman who helped shape shape the sound of big band. So when I think of jazz, it's generally male artists that pop into mind. Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Thelonious Monk, Dave Brubeck, uh, Duke Ellington. Like, these are names we know, with the the fine exception being Ella Fitzgerald. But she's a female vocalist and didn't necessarily play an instrument. However, Mary Lou Williams has been called, quote, the greatest jazz pianist in captivity. The greatest woman jazz pianist in the world. And this is my favorite one. Highly acclaimed as a deluxe tickler of the ivories. Who doesn't want to be a tickler of the ivories? I mean, I'm just saying. Uh, She was also one of the, the foremost swing pianists of either sex. So she basically... Uh, helped shape jazz music and the sound of big band and a little bit of swing before swing eventually died. But she was born in 1910 and she was a composer and arranger and a pianist and achieved and maintained a status that many women in jazz found really, really elusive and difficult to pin down, which was she had unquestioned respect from her male colleagues and treatment as a musical equal. She was a swinging percussive player and she was a major force in the development of the Kansas City swing and bebop revolution. But before she did all of that, she learned to play the piano at age six because she had, I know, she had an almost divine feeling that playing the piano would save her life, which it did because she got the neighbors to stop throwing bricks into her family's house by giving them private concerts. I know. So by 1925, at just 15, she was a full-time working musician. And uh, in the middle of the 20th century, Williams had solidified her status as a jazz great. And, you know, she helped 
develop the Kansas City sound of swing in the 30s. And by 1936, at the age of 25, her reputation had already preceded her. She was... the. The, playing the piano was her primary gig. Kansas City band Andy Kirk and his Clouds of Joy was her main gig, if you will. And they were really taking off. And they packed, they played for packed dances all around the country alongside artists like, you know, Louis Armstrong. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, Williams was the, the marquee attraction for a lot of people to come and see. And it was a little bit of a novelty for a woman pianist, but mostly because of her undeniable artistry um, that she was not questioned. Whether Art Tatum could really swing like Mary Lou Williams was a question, but there were no caveats in sight because she had already garnered enough acclaim to record solo sides as well as recording with Kansas City. I'm sorry, as well as recording with Clouds of Joy. And she was playing with Clouds of Joy and their song Until the Real Thing Comes Along, which was arranged by Williams, was the biggest song of 1936. And as a result, she got calls from band leaders from, oh, you know, little known artists that you've probably never heard of, like Benny Goodman and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, you know, NBD. But she was known for her compositions and her arrangements. So let's like talk about arrangement, musical arrangement for a second, because I didn't really realize quite what it was. So it's not a glamorous part of of the music world. Essentially, uh, composing and arranging is uh, designing each band member's part. Yeah. So it's like you design all the parts to fit together. And coming up with new spins on familiar sounds or familiar pieces is also a part of it. And so... Composing was, I'm sorry, arranging was some of her more noteworthy endeavors, given her history as a player and a composer. But too often, women's contributions to music, specifically jazz, are diminished because it was believed that her arranging was more intuitive. And because it was thought of to be intuitive, it was thus less um, unintentional or backed by a musical education, if you will, which is not a very correct assumption. But yeah, it's basically like, oh, you know, women be having feelings and feeling things. And oh, yeah, maybe those feelings can translate into really beautiful music, but it's not based in education. So don't take it very seriously is essentially that. And um, sadly, a lot of her work is really tough to track down since many of her arrangements were never recorded and a lot of them were actually lost. Yeah. And so by the 40s, she mentored some of Bebop's most famous innovators, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, the list goes on. But remember when I said that Williams had a divine feeling that jazz would save her life? Well, it did for a little bit. Jazz helped William's family stay alive. It paid her bills. It kept racist neighbors at bay. It took her all around the country and across the Atlantic and to Europe. But Jazz was also kind of killing her. Yeah. By 19... uh, Her health and her emotions. By 1954, Williams was physically and emotionally exhausted. And so she quit the scene. And actually... In uh, an obituary, an obituary written in 1981, New York Times 
that the New York Times had written for Williams, uh, the writer wrote about how she would stand up to play the piano during a Paris performance and refused to perform ever again after that for three years. And so during her break from performance, Williams went through a period of self-reflection, I guess self-development, as we would call, and uh, what exactly and what the meaning of her life's work was all about and she didn't end up returning she returned in 1957 and she claimed that her true power as one of jazz fiercest advocates making spiritual and political music and uh with clarified purpose she helped to push the genre to new heights for me reading through her life it's like oh oh my god guys give the lady her things like without her certain sounds that I'm sure now I'm not a huge jazz listener. My father is a big jazz guy, jazz aficionado. He'd probably know more than me, but I'm sure a lot of the common commonplace jazz sounds, if that makes any sense, um, mm-hmm. were probably th- created by Williams at some point in the creation of, of her unique sound. And sadly we'll never know. We'll never know what she We'll never know what her uh, actual work was versus what riffs on her work are because we don't have her original music to listen to. Yeah, yeah. So those are our ladies that we are discussing, that we discussed. Uh, I really hope you guys are inspired. But before we end the show, we always do a call to action. (laughs) We sure do. And I think that this call to action, we really wanted to inspire you guys to be trailblazers in your own life. We want to give you guys some ideas of how to, you know, surprise yourself during the social distancing time. I mean, time is is something that we all have a lot of. And, and uh, also not. And also, I mean, right now, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, right, slapping. Right, while we're all trapped in the house, right, not working. (laughs) Um, You know, how can we as women uh, surprise ourselves and maybe learn a new skill? Maybe be, maybe you know, reach deep into the depths of ourself and uh, do something that we never thought we would do, or maybe have fancied or toyed with the idea of doing, but never actually doing it. Uh, in talking right. to a friend of mine earlier, she's in Washington State, so obviously she's in the epicenter of what's happening. She loves beer, and <laughs> with non-essential businesses closing down, she has made the decision to learn how to brew her own beer at home, nice. like a low-key micro-brewing situation. That's awesome. And I was like, that's badass. Like, yeah. go do that. And she's like, I never thought I would, but now I kind of have to. And it made me think, like, yeah, this necessity could bring out that side of us. Also, learning a new language. If you've always yep. been wanting to do that, now mm-hmm. is a really good time. Learning to meditate. You know, yeah. Deepak Chopra has a ton of good meditations out there. Um, learning how to make your own clothes or sew. Yeah, that's, good the one. One, that's one on my list. Really? Yeah, just because well, I love I have, that. I've been I've been patching. I know, right? I've been patching a lot of my um, all the clothes I've been wanting to patch. Like I've been adjusting uh, like shoulder, like um, like tank top straps. I've been like mm-hmm. adjusting them to to fit me properly. Yes. Um, so you've been doing that yeah. for a while, girl. I know, right? Um, I, I, <laughs> well, I have a bunch of tank tops. Um, I've been like patching holes. I sewed a coat. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really like it. It's meditative for me, but I also 
like feeling like I'm in control of my my clothes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I think learn new skills. I think also, too, something like just make a list, guys. Make a list of something, some things you've always wanted to do and have never been able to yeah. do. And if, if, if some of them require going out of your house or some of them require a lot more research or steps to get to it, then, then do it. You know, you have the time. Um, what are some yep. things you can do now at home that can get you closer um, to mm-hmm. to that to that final destination but um it's great i mean we have it's like a little mini vacation in a way <laughs> yeah i think it dep- totally depends on how you choose to utilize this time i have friends that right. are like whatever no work let's get drunk all day which look no shade no shade if you are the kind of person that wants to sit at home and just sort of like totally totally take a break i do think that a great way to sort of surprise yourself and utilize this time is to dig deep within the depths of your soul and and challenge yourself to do something that you've always wanted to do. Um, my fiance is one of his friends ha- is doing something that I think is super cool. So I'm passing along to all of you, especially if your job is um, if you've lost your job, if you've been laid off, if you're furloughed, um, apply for your dream job. Dare yourself and challenge yourself to apply for that dream job that you've always wanted. I realize that right now no one is hiring. Right. But things will start hiring again. And when they do, you want to have your name in that list, your name, Mm -hmm. your cover letter, your resume, your picture. Like you want to be on that list. And I feel like now is a great time to experiment because essentially right now we are living in one big societal and world experiment where no one quite knows what to do so why not apply for that dream job and maybe you have all the qualifications maybe you have none of the qualifications you know what the worst they could do is not respond but exactly i think it would be great for your heart for yourself if you just applied for the that job or those jobs that you've always wanted and maybe pie in the sky you'll get it maybe you can um uh channel a little bit of that may jemison energy you know reach for the stars kind of a thing (laughs) send your future into orbit i'm just saying you and your space puns you got them you got them on you got them on. Oh, I don't have one. I was going to say. They're electrifying. They're electrocuting me. It's They're literally because. Me. Well, when I was writing up the Mae Jemison part of this show, I kept calling her like space traveler, space explorer. And I was like, there has to be a better word for this. And I was like, oh, yeah, dummy astronaut. Like, that's what we call people that travel into space. But in the process of trying to figure out what that word is, I was like, synonym for space, synonym for outer space. And it brought me to all of these different, like, you know, celestial sayings and and, and uh, orbital uh, notions. So right. that's why that's happening. Sorry, I'm totally just hey, like I running like my them. mouth. Love- what you got, girl? <laughs> I love puns. Um <laughs> yeah, you said a lot of the ones that I wanted to say. Um, but yeah, take your time because you guys uh, can. So do it and um, and enjoy it while you can. Yeah, guys. And we'll be back next week for another great episode, another long episode. This has been on the, one of the longer ones. And I hope if you are listening to this, hopefully you're on a lovely walk, maybe a hike. Maybe Jackie and I's voices have soothed you. Maybe you're, you know 
ready to lay down in the middle of some beautiful field and take a little nap. If you do, we'd like to hear about it. We'd, right. like, to, <laughs> we'd like to hear how our uh, work on this show has helped you get through this social distancing time. So please reach out to us on via email or on Instagram. Uh, you can reach out to us individually. I am Alana Webster at Renegade of Fun. I'm Jacqueline Chung Young on the gram. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Uh, you can also rate and review us. We love the reviews. It helps keep this little baby growing. Uh, she's two now, so we want to mm-hmm. make sure we, you know, keep nurturing her, keep cultivating her, and hopefully bring you guys the best content possible with lots of love and dedication. Yeah. And with that, I'm going to say that's our show. We'll be back next week. But until then, take care of yourselves, wash your hands, and don't be a dick. Have a good one, guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Christian Humes over at Zeitheist. We are the Black and Yellow Podcast. We are on the gram, and you can find us on the gram at Black and Yellow Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Chung Young on Instagram. And I am Alana Webster, but my handle is at Renegade of Fun. You can also find us on Apple Podcast and Spotify at Black and Yellow Podcast. The podcast is important. It is important. (laughs) Um, And you can rate, review, please subscribe if you like. We'd love to hear your thoughts, any comments, any concerns, any questions. Reach out to us. Let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear from you guys. Definitely. One love. Stay woke and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.